Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So friends, uh, we are a few weeks out from Easter and we are in a kind of new series, um, kind of an old series. It's a pickup from a series we did right before Lent uh, where we're talking about justice. Before Lent, we talked about um, the biblical stance on justice, um, different passages from both Old and New Testament and, and what they said back then. And so today we're going to be continuing our conversation about what it means to live that out here and now in today's uh, time and space. So, Steve, where are we going today? Well, um, we are going to be talking today about what economic justice might look like. And because that's such a big, big category, we're going to maybe take some cues today from what some ideas from the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures might look like for doing justice. And then later in a future episode, we'll take a look at what some New Testament perspectives might be. And this might be a good moment, too, for a disclaimer for everybody. Um, we are all now living into the reality called social distancing. And uh, this is the first time in all of our recording that we've had to meet remotely in three different places on planet Earth at the same time. So thanks to the technological expertise of uh, Sarah, we are trying out um, uh, a means that will allow us to record in three different places. But bear with us, listeners, if there are places where the sound feels a little bit different or when uh if if there are any oddities out of the out of the ordinary we will blame it entirely on the coronavirus and not on us (laughs) so all right let's 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 start off the the places where we're taking cues from today are uh the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and what they have to say about economic justice. Where do we even start that conversation? So I think Where I would like to start is when you hear of economic justice in the Old Testament, what's the first thing that you think of? Like for me, what I think of is things like Jubilee year, Um, you know, that that time when everything like all the debts are just completely wiped clean so that people can have a fresh start. Mm -hmm. And um Cause like, and we don't really have quite anything that looks quite like that. Um, you know, occasionally you can apply and get a loan that is forgivable. Like for example, there are some degree programs that you can go and get a degree in like teaching or in medicine and it gets forgiven, forgiven if you work so many years in you know, a certain place, mm-hmm. you know, places that really need teachers or doctors or nurses or whatever. But basically you can go through school, you can get these loans and then those loans are forgiven if you work in a, like in that job field in this certain place. I think that's the closest we currently have. Um, but, you know, when I, when I hear Jubilee things, I just can't help but think, what would it mean for, this person or for this community, if everybody's debt or a certain type of debt would just be forgiven, like what would their lives then look like if they no longer had to worry about, you know, their debts? Yeah. Um, I was thinking lately um, uh, in the 
in the wake of the economic impact of the coronavirus and people staying at home and, and businesses being closed, I know part of one of the stimulus packages uh, that got passed was a series of forgivable loans for businesses to keep people on payroll. And mm-hmm. there the forgiveness is as long as you use the money for uh, keeping people on payroll, those loans are completely forgivable. It's There's not like future achievement you have to do. It's just, did you, did you use the money that you got for your business to pay your employees? And in those instances, the loans are to be forgivable. We'll see if all that turns out as good as it sounds, but that seems like a, even a little bit closer than like the student teaching or teaching sort of a loan where there's a, a catch. There's a, you have to you know, do this certain thing in order for the loan to be forgivable. But what we're looking at now is a, is a, a situation where society has said, we want pe- people to continue to be able to feed their families and we don't want businesses to collapse. This will be something that we'll, we'll basically just forgive uh, and, and wipe it all clean, regardless of other future performance. Yeah. And, and one of the nice side effects, I think, of those particular loans that, you know, that are forgivable is that that reduces quite a bit of anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. in these uncertain times, I know a lot of people are, you know, if they haven't been laid out, laid off already, it's a little bit of just like holding your breath of like, mm, by, by in a couple of months, will I still have a job? Because if you lose a job, yeah. You know, yeah. nobody's hiring. So, or very few places are hiring. So it's a little bit like, well, will I be able to get work? So it's like right, right, right. You know, it, keeping your job is wonderful. Yeah. It's funny to me as, as we talk about this and this whole idea of the, just the wiping out of, of debts uh, altogether, like that the, the perspective of the biblical writers, like the, the writers, the, the voices you hear in the Torah, for example, they assume, it seems to me like, forgiving debts is a good thing, even though that would shake up a lot of the financial order of things. You know, if every 50 years you did what the Jubilee laws said, it would mean that, yeah, people would, would if, you, if you were the guy who is holding a lot of other people's debts and loans, it would mean that you wouldn't be able to make a giant fortune on them. And every 50 years, they'd be able to just go back to the family farm and you know, start over. Um, the, the biblical voices seem to assume that's a good thing because it prevents possibility of anybody owning all the land or all the labor and some people not being able to feed their kids or um, somebody being punished because their you know, times are bad when their parents were farming or something like that. But it, like in, in the back of my memory are a lot of uh, at least a couple of like classic 1990s action thriller movies that were premised on what a terrible thing it would be if some villain got away with wiping out everybody's financial records. There was a James Bond movie. I think I think it was one of the first uh, Pierce Brosnan movies where the bad guy, the like, uh, forgive me, there's only so many chances I get to work James Bond movies into theological conversations. But if I'm remembering right, part of the the villain's plan was to set off an electromagnetic pulse. It wasn't going to kill people, but was going to wipe out everybody's financial records. And, um, the 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 scary thing if you were James Bond who's you know working for the British government is we want to preserve this system where nobody can uh, lose their debts or nobody you know can have those those records canceled and here the villain is like that's exactly what I want to do I don't want to make things even and start fresh I even think there was a movie in the nineties called Sneakers with. Um, Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier, that was like, it, it was the, the same thing. And the bad guy in that movie, um, who was a little more sympathetic than a James Bond villain, was just trying to wipe out computer records. And like, it, it's interesting 
to me that like there was a time not too long ago when the conventional wisdom, at least in movie world, was, oh, what a terrible thing it would be if you canceled people's debts. And on the other hand, the Old Testament was like, no, that would be a helpful thing. Yeah, it would shake things up, but it, it could be helpful. There was a bank robber in the Great Depression in the Midwest who uh-huh. one of his signature moves was when he would go in to rob a bank, he would, of course, take all the money. But then he would also make the bank tellers give him all of the loan documentations for like mortgages. And he would light it (laughs) on fire on his way out of the bank. And so he was by like all of these communities because, yeah, he stole all the money. But guess what? They no longer had a mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it is it is interesting at least and maybe this this uh gives us like some some yellow flags for our conversation like that there's something that that is certainly um radical and and different about the the old testament perspective of jubilee that is very very different from our system and that yeah sounds very close to sort of robin hood kind of thinking about like it's okay to cancel debts even if that means that the um uh, the 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 investor people lose out on some of their profits if it means somebody else gets to eat but like this is kind of scandalous stuff uh, to be suggesting and the and the what's interesting to me is that the writers of the old testament don't blush about it that like at no point after you get the commandment about the jubilee or do you have like a chapter long disclaimer of um why it's okay or don't be afraid of it. it's just sort of like spoken like here's how god does things god forgives debts because they exist not that you have to give a reason for what that's going to do for um some investor who's got, you know, lots and lots of money, you know, invested in other people's bad loans. Well, in a society like ours, it's so divided by class, you know, and not quite as bad as, as India once and still in some ways is, you know, what would that look like for us? You know, if you cancel debts every 50 years, then you no longer have that upper middle and lower class. Everybody, right. kind of, you know, ends up on the same level. And I mean, what would, I don't know what that would mean for us. I mean, it would mean so many things for our nation. Like, it would change us so drastically to even attempt to do something like that. I I, I always kind of wonder how it would negatively affect the community. Because all in all, I think the Jubilee year sounds like a wonderful thing. But if we had something like that, would that mean if we were approaching Jubilee year that suddenly people wouldn't be giving out loans? Right, exactly. And and it seems like the the writers of the Torah foresee that kind of concern when when the commandments about Jubilee or Sabbath year get mentioned, it'll say things like, Now if the Jubilee year is coming up and you're gonna be tempted not to want to help people because it'll say to them you'll say to yourself, Well, the debt'll just get canceled soon and you're still supposed to help your neighbor out. But um it's yeah, it, it is interesting that there could be repercussions about something like this that nobody can foresee. If for that matter too, like I don't mean to paint like uh, investors as like all black hat wearing mustache twirling villains, like uh, the the bad guy in It's a Wonderful Life. But like lots of people, you know, people's pensions are tied up in investments that include bank investments that probably mean somebody's loans, that probably means somebody's home loans. And um, it's it's not quite the same as in an ancient agrarian society where most everybody are farmers, but a handful of people owe everybody else's debt. Things are different where everybody sort of isn't it has as a, a reason to see markets do well or to see, you know, businesses thrive. Um, and that that is a, a different feel maybe from ancient Iron Age Palestine. 
it, I, I guess it, it, it raises one more, one more note in my mind right now. And that's um, the idea that you kind of hinted at earlier, Sarah, that um, Jubilee isn't based on merit, but simply on the existence of debt. And I think that's a piece that maybe our culture has a really hard idea with, a hard time with, because we, we're maybe willing to go as far as, well, your student loans could be forgiven if you serve in an inner city or you, you know, uh, become a teacher in some place where nobody else wants to go. That still kind of feels like there's a, a market motivation for it for some folks. But the idea of Jubilee isn't we're motivating you or incentivizing you to do something different, but just we want to wipe out debt because it means that you're able to feed your family and your family now isn't living under crushing debt. Um, there's a line, I think, of uh, Marilyn Robinson's out of her novel, Gilead. She says something like, in the Bible, the, the only acceptable reason for forgiving debt is simply the existence of debt. And I love that notion that the biblical idea of forgiving debt isn't based on I'm trying to get you to do something else or to make a different choice in the future or I'm forgiving you on condition of. But it's simply if there's a debt, the thing to do is to cancel it because uh, the just just because it exists. Um, and that, that's, a, a again, a pretty radical idea compared to our culture where so much is built on owning somebody else's debt. I, I wonder if we could also talk um, while we're talking about Old Testament categories or, or institutions that had to do with with justice and economic justice um, were things like the the gleaning laws that were a part of the Torah as well. Um, those those are a set of commandments that basically say if you are a farmer and most people are farmers in that era in that culture, um, you're not supposed to harvest all the crop from your field, but to leave things at the edges for people who don't own your land to come and take it so they can have something for themselves. It's sort of a built-in margin that requires you to not be maximizing your profits, but to leave some for others. Um, and I guess I want to toss that out. What what does that say to a culture like ours that seems so obsessed with maximizing profits and streamlining efficiencies? As somebody who's been working with our local food bank for the past year, um, I see this on a pretty regular basis, actually, Okay. Uh, because we get don't like we have, you know, the the canned goods, the non-perishables that come in from the Greater Pittsburgh Food Bank and ICAP. Um, but then we often will get extra donations um, like frozen meals from Walmart that they can't sell anymore or, or things that are close to the expiration date or just, you know, like or that day they was the expiration date on them. Um and so it, it's nice to see companies that do those kind of things. Um, but I also know that they just write it off. Um, right. They're not just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. They're getting a benefit from, from giving it away and giving it to a food bank. Um, but, you know, that has been a huge blessing, especially in the last two months uh, at our local food bank here in Marion Center. Um, we had some really unique items come in. We had lobster bisque um, back in what is this back in March uh, that we were giving out to folks and so much so that we had to send some of it back to ICAC. We couldn't use it all. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, again, it's not, it's kind of like what the old Testament is talking about, but not exactly because there is an incentive to do it now yeah. that wasn't there in the old Testament. I think that's a really interesting point that you made there that like, we do have something that's slightly analogous, like the way um, companies may give up, uh, excess food uh for a food bank or something like that but yeah that like 
there's also a a bottom line self-interested motivation even for corporations to do that in a way that like the gleaning laws in the Old Testament seem to think the reason to leave some behind is not because you get a tax incentive. There was no such thing as a tax incentive in ancient Israel, but it's grounded in you do this in order to love your neighbor. And the reason to love your neighbor is to help them out so they can live that like that there's, there's a sense that the laws were there to shape the kind of people that you'd become if you lived in ancient Israel, that that God's intention was both to make sure everybody got to eat, but also that the people were being shaped into decent, compassionate, loving, generous people. And not just, I'm only doing this because it will be good for me or it will, you know, at tax time, this will be a profit to me, but that part of what, God is intending to do to the people is to shape their, I guess, their, their character in a way through these kind of practices. To me, that, that almost feels like, um, the, the, that maybe that the, the analog in my mind, uh, is, isn't at the food bank, but, um, every time I go out to a restaurant or back in the days when we used to go out to restaurants, you know, remember those days, um, uh, I know some folks whose approach to leaving a tip is very much sort of merit-based. Were you a good server? I will reward you. Were you not a good server? I will not reward you. Um, and who, who treat it like it, it, it basically like a reward. And in, in my mind, I, I, I have come to see leaving a tip differently, not, not only because I know that people who um, are servers in restaurants get a lower hourly wage because they are eligible for tips potentially, but also um, there is this sense of, the, the 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 word gratuity comes from the word for grace. I mean, there's this idea of this is just simply about like leaving margins of of kindness and compassion because it's good to do it for people and to think I, I don't know how that will help that server, but my guess is if they're in a positive mood because they got a bigger tip, they will treat their next customer well. And I want to be the kind of person who, if I have the opportunity to make somebody's day better rather than worse, I would do that rather than um, pinching every penny that I could. And I think that's a piece where for me committing to trying to be a better tipper than my stinginess would have me be otherwise is some is something that changes my character that over over time i become a different kind of person because of that practice um regardless of whether my extra 50 cents or a dollar did anything for the server on this day uh, or that day i lived with a server in seminary when my roommates um worked at a bar and after talking with her and hearing the stories of what she went through every day and her, you know, her coworkers and everything, I had, you know, I'm a, I'm a 20 percenter, you know, that's the minimum. Even if I get lousy service, it starts at 20 and then it only goes up yeah. from there for that reason, because, you know, I, these, these folks deserve it. They put in hard, long hours um, and often, you know, will never get paid what they, what they deserve. Um and a lot yeah. of times people are stingy and, you know, if they're having a bad day, then they might not give the greatest service. And then that's going to reflect in their tips. Yeah. And then it becomes a vicious circle, you know? Mm-hmm. And t- to me, it seems like there's another piece where um, both the gleaning laws and even the Jubilee laws were intended to break those cycles from becoming permanent, you know, that like in a way similar to like Jubilee was to prevent somebody from being permanently under the boot forever, always in debt, that even that idea of leaving a tip, if it breaks the cycle so that the person who's in a bad mood doesn't continue to give bad service so that Mm -hmm. then they get more more bad tips, like if it's a way of breaking that cycle, even a little bit, that's, that's worth it. That's part of why, why we do things like that. I was thinking too, maybe I, uh, that there, there's maybe a, a similar, um, 
point of contact, again, not quite the same as the gleaning laws, but might be the the impulse to buy or to, to um, be, be cons- uh, consumers and customers at local businesses where possible, even if that means paying a little bit more. That like if uh, I, I, I've seen this meme floating around on the Internet lately about like local dairy farmers, you know, dairy farmers mm-hmm. these days are having to dump milk and waste it because there just isn't the ability for folks to process it. Um, and the the. the the piece that sticks in my head is like that there's the possibility to buy, you know, national brand milk or local milk. Um, I mean, still just as pasteurized, still just, it's, it's, it's not like it hasn't been treated or, 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 um, you know, health treated or whatever. Um, but that when you're helping local farmers, the, the people right in your own community are going to get more of the profit rather than less money is being sent shipping milk from one place to another. Um, and if it means that somebody locals farm doesn't close down that that's worth supporting um, rather than some giant corporation that's going to be okay if they, you know, don't get my milk sales. I, there's a local restaurant near me that I frequent a lot. Yeah. And my parishioners know that. Uh, and so gift cards usually come in around Christmas time for that particular place. And um I've been very intentional to try. Um, I've not always done it, but at least once a week, I've been trying to go out there and get a meal from them. And um, but right now, even though I have those gift cards, I'm trying to to pay for it with my own money because they've already gotten that money from those gift right. cards. You know, um, so I'd rather go in there and spend my own money right now just to help keep them afloat. Because honestly, this is a place that used to be open for lunch and dinner. Now they're just right. open dinner takeout because yep. there isn't enough of a lunch crowd to keep them open. And I've talked with the servers there. I know them. Um, people that used to work 60 hours a week are now working 15 to 20. You know, so. Right, right, right. And that, that seems like an important piece where like it's, it's, um, helping businesses to continue again that otherwise might be forced to close permanently, not just during this mm-hmm. time of coronavirus, but um, you know, that McDonald's is not going to go out of business nationally or around the globe uh, because of this. But the local restaurant that is just trying to keep its doors open in some form, yeah, they they might not be able to make it because they're burning through savings or whatever. So, like to to me, it feels like, and not for us to just pat ourselves on the back for half an hour because aren't aren't we good little boys and girls here? But like there there are ways that you can take the the logic of how the gleaning laws work and to say, you know what, I, I want to make sure even if it means a little bit of loss in my profit or a little bit of uh, a, a additional expended, it means something good for the neighbor um, who might be struggling or who might be more at risk if I don't help. That's worth doing. And that's that's hardwired into the Torah's understanding of how we take care of our neighbor. Um, and again, we live in a culture that so often just says you bid for who, you know, whoever the lowest bidder is. You buy whatever you can for the cheapest, and that's always best. And maybe, maybe that's not always the case. So, is there anything there else any- you want to say about the Old Testament? Um, I, I want to maybe bring up one other other piece. Um, back when we first uh, did the first part of this series, walking through different biblical passages, we talked about um, uh, the the way the prophets. Did deal with economic justice and and two voices that are coming to my mind right now are um amos uh and and isaiah and there's in particular a place in amos that that comes to my mind where um he's he's criticizing the basically the, the business owners of his day who are saying things like um when when will the sabbath be over so we can get back to business and then they he enumerates a bunch of 
cheating business practices they want to get back to. And um, that Isaiah seems to have a concern, like I'm thinking about Isaiah 58, about the, the kind of fast, the kind of uh, religious ritual that God is interested in has more to do with taking care of the neighbor, the, you know, the welcoming the homeless poor and letting the oppressed go free, rather than putting on sackcloth and lighting candles. Um, and I guess that's a, a place where to me it seems like this is a moment for us as not only uh, people who live in, in an economy, but as people who are religious professionals also to talk about like, how does how does economic justice speak to this moment in, a, in American life and uh, the reality of being closed for, say, worship gatherings because of coronavirus. Um, to me, like, th- there's obviously, there's this economic worry in the back of my head as a pastor of, like, well, every Sunday we're not gathering. That changes, you know, there's, there's not the offerings are coming in. We can't do the ministry work we want to be able to do. And yet the choice to stay closed when we've shut our doors for public worship to me feels like it's not something I've made that call in spite of my faith, but because of it. And in particular, Mm -hmm. because of the concern for the neighbor, even if I can't measure or tell anybody there's a 3% or 4% greater chance of keeping people healthy because we shut our doors. There's just that sense to me of this is, this is a choice that churches take to stay closed because of their love for neighbor. um, That is very much in tune in my mind with the, the, teachings and the voices of like Amos and Isaiah, rather than hearing it the way sometimes it's framed of, if you believed hard enough, nobody in your church would get coronavirus. And therefore, if you close your doors, you don't have faith. I, to me, it seems it's the opposite. And I keep hearing in the back of my mind, those those words of Amos's, um, you know, when will the Sabbath be over so we can open our doors again? It's our making money. And Amos is like, no, just stop it. <laughs> Or as I hear people critiquing, you know, either churches or, or governors who are asking churches to be closed, um, especially over Easter weekend a couple weeks ago, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to, and Steve, you alluded to it, uh, the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor. And, and I know, um, yes, Jesus said that in the New Testament, but, but it comes out of the Old Testament, you know, it's, it's love God and love your neighbor and that's why, you know, we've had our doors closed at my church for a month now, you yeah. know, for that reason, because I've got people in my church who I love them dearly. Um, they're good Western PA stock. They're a little stubborn. And so they would be there if the doors were open and they're 90 plus years old. They should not be there. But, you know, that's just how they are. If the doors are open. They'll be there. And so yeah. to protect them, yeah. I need to close my doors. Yeah, it, I, I appreciate hearing your your voice on that because, like it, it again, it feels like the temptation in a moment like this is to treat uh, wh- how does faith intersect with the coronavirus? It mu- oh, it must be if you believe hard enough, you'll you know weather the storm and you'll be open. Because I mean, like, and to me that feels like that that misunderstands what where faith intersects here. Um, and again, like like you point out the the second greatest commandment that Jesus says, you know, is, is love your neighbor um, is is he, he's, he's not inventing that. That comes right out of uh, Leviticus as well. And even, even that, that conversation that Jesus has in the Gospels about the greatest commandment, Jesus doesn't exactly call it second in importance. He's asked what's the most important commandment, and he says, love, your, love God. Oh, and by the way, the second part of that that nobody ever makes the connection on is love your Like Jesus doesn't treat it like, all right, love God, and if you have time for a second commandment, love your neighbor. Jesus says, love God, and what does that look like? Because it turns out God doesn't need our candles or incense or rituals or liturgies. What God does want is for us to take care of our neighbor. Um, 
that that seems to me like we're on very solid Hebrew scripture ground too. That uh, yeah, even though that's that's a Jesus moment, Jesus is uh, standing pretty solidly on the the Torah before him. Okay, so I think that's it for Old Testament. I, I think that probably is a good place to stick a pin in things. So yeah. next time we'll pick up the conversation about what economic justice looks like, listening to voices from the New Testament, right? Yeah. Very good. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.